Hey, everybody, this is episode 134 of Reclaiming the Faith, and today I'm starting a 20-part series. It's a Bible study I did with my wife, Stephanie Baker, back in 2020 on the book of Philippians. Today we're going to be looking at the first two verses. We'll do a an introduction on the book. Uh, we'll look at Acts chapter 16, the uh, events surrounding Paul's founding of the church at Philippi and um, those first two verses as well. So I hope this is a blessing to you. That whole series during that summer of 2020 was such a blessing to me and my wife. Uh, give you a, I want to give you a quick update on what's going on with the album. Uh, we've got six songs completely done. Work has begun on the seventh song. I believe it's gonna be a 14 song album, so please be in prayers for that. Uh, yeah, be in prayer for, for me. Um, I'm not sure what God wants me to do with the podcast, but uh, it may look something like this. Uh, Bible study from an early Christian perspective. I'm not sure. Uh, along the way, there may be some standalone episodes. There may be some interviews. I definitely want to leave room for that. But Bible study is what I love, and I love the early Christians, and so maybe that's where God will uh, lead me. Who knows? Just please be in prayer for me, and I'll definitely keep you updated as, uh, as things get clearer. All right, I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and I'm blessed to be able to join him, it looks like every other Friday, as we walk through the Didache, one of the, if not the earliest extra-biblical Christian document that is called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nation. So be sure to check that out on our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live every other Friday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 134, which is part one of my series on Philippians. How are y'all doing tonight? Good to see you, Andrew, BDK, Jen. All right, so... What I want to do is I want to read these first two verses of Philippians chapter one, verse one and two, and, uh, and then we're going to break down the context of it. We're going to get into the who, where, when, why, and then we'll go kind of like word by word through, through these two verses. And, you know, if you got a question or you got a comment, please feel free to jump in and, uh, and we'll be sure to write that. So here it is. Here's Philippians chapter one verses one and two. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. All right, so let's start with the who. Who's writing this? It says it's Paul and Timothy. It's mostly Paul that's doing the writing. You can see he's mostly speaking in the first person throughout the letter, but Timothy's there with him. He may be a scribe for Paul, or he may just be there kind of observing uh, as Paul is writing. So to get into how Timothy became part 
of this letter, you actually kind of have to go back to Acts chapter chapter 14. And in Acts chapter 14, Paul is on his first missionary journey. And um, he's on his first missionary journey. This is in the early to mid 40s AD. So you got Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, which is in the southern portion of Galatia. So Paul sees a man who has the faith to be healed. And he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. The man gets up. And the people are really excited at first. But then some Judaizers come and they basically turn the city against Paul and they have him stoned and they drag him out of the city. He, they think he's dead. He might've been. The disciples gather around him and probably they're praying for him. He, he comes back to life and he goes back into the city. He goes back into Lystra and these same, where these same people are that just stoned him. Then he goes to Derby. Then he comes back to Lystra a second time, or a third time, really, if you count him being dragged out of the city and then brought back. So this is a third time. And that's where we see Acts 14, 21 through 23. And Luke writes this, After they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's just a powerful verse. I remember the first time that I saw it, and I was just kind of shocked by that. We, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Paul said. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now that made quite an impression on a young man there named Timothy. So here in Acts 16 verse 1, you see Paul recruiting Timothy for the mission field. So it says, Acts 16 verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So it's interesting, Timothy didn't grow up necessarily in a broken home, but a it's complicated type of home. You have a home where his mother, a Jewish convert uh, to Christianity, to the way of Christ, but whose dad, Timothy's dad, just, he's just a Greek. He sees things through Hellenistic eyes where like you are the center of the universe type of approach that Alexander the Great started pushing forward in the 300s BC, around 330 or so. So Paul meets, sorry, Paul meets Timothy. Paul meets Timothy in Lystra. He encourages him to go out into the mission field. Hey, Dustin, thanks so much for joining us. And Trish, thank you so much for joining us. Remember, guys, if y'all have a question or a comment, please feel free to write in. And yeah, for those of y'all that are just coming on, this is my beautiful wife, Stephanie, joining me, hey. helping to mod a little bit. So I don't know yeah, what I'm doing, but. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great. All right. So, um, 
So Paul suffering faithfully for the gospel made a big impact on Timothy. And Paul putting other people's interests above his own. It, uh, we also got Todd Falk joining us. Hey, here. Todd. Yeah. Good awesome. to see you, brother. All right, man. So um, it's really interesting because this, this living out the character of Christ that Paul or that Timothy saw in Paul had a great impact on Timothy. And Paul actually writes about how Timothy has taken on the attitude of Christ as well in Philippians chapter two. He's, so one of the main reasons why Paul has Timothy as like a co-writer, you could say, is that he's giving the Philippians a really good example of what it looks like to become like Christ through discipleship and through the power, mostly through the power of the Holy Spirit changing us to have the same attitude, the same mindset as Christ Jesus putting others above himself. So let me read you quickly what Paul writes about Timothy in Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. It's a pretty high compliment coming from someone like Paul saying, man, I got to send you Timothy because there is no one like him. I don't know anyone like him that puts others' needs above their own. That's so cool. So let's go to the where. We did the who, who's writing, Paul and Timothy. And now let's get into the where. So this is Philippi. Now, Philippi is a colony of Rome in Macedonia. It was a very patriotic city. Caesar Augustus established it as a place for Roman veterans of war to live. So it was a city that had intense devotion to the emperor and who at the time, this emperor bore two main titles, the first kurios, which means Lord, and the second one soter, which means savior. So you can easily imagine how Christians would be treated who began to say in that fourth decade of the first century, no, there is, or the third decade rather of the first century, no, there is only one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ, who bears the name above every name, and we are citizens of his kingdom. You can understand then how they would begin to suffer much persecution. And you see that in the foundings of the church at Philippi. In Acts 16, Paul goes there and there's no synagogue, but there are some women who gather at a river to pray. And so you have a woman named Lydia, who's a dealer in purple. She's a wealthy lady, but she's a Jewish lady. And she's basically having prayer meetings down at this river. Kind of like you might think uh, we'd get some inspiration from Psalm chapter one about. So Paul goes down to this river and he finds these women. And basically he has a Bible study or a prayer meeting there with the women. And he preaches the gospel to her. And she becomes a convert to the way of Christ. 
And so basically she implores Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to come to her house and to stay there. And so they basically start having house church in, uh, in Lydia's house. Now, sometime after that, Paul and Silas and the boys are walking through the streets of Philippi, and there's a slave girl, a girl who is a slave of some Roman citizens there in Philippi who is possessed by a python spirit. It's, a, it's based around this, this snake that they believed uh, was slain by Apollo, but that was like the spirit of the snake is guarding the uh, temple at Delphi. And so this, this python spirit was said to have um, the spirit of divination, being able to like tell the future in a sense, uh, kind of like that oracle at Delphi would. And so we'll jump into this situation of how this church at Philippi gets founded um, after that uh, meeting with Lydia. So this is in verse 19. Uh, sorry, uh, let me go back just a little bit. She's going around saying, these slave girls going around saying, these men are telling you the way to be saved. And she does this over and over and over. JC, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a kundalini. I don't know if that was a yoga thing or not, but it was certainly very interesting. Yeah, like that snake connection with the kundalini. Yeah, may, maybe so. I'm not sure. But... um most likely it's connected to that temple at Delphi with the, the Python, but it's an interesting connection that you're making for sure. So she's going around basically taunting and mocking Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke saying, these men are telling you the way to be saved. And so eventually like Paul can't take it anymore and he turns and he casts out the evil spirit in the name of Jesus. And it comes out of her immediately. And that makes the girl's masters very upset. So jumping into verse 19 of Acts 16, it says, But when her masters saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them out of the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now you can think, what customs were they preaching? Well, Paul is preaching that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. The good news is not that Rome has come to you to bring this Pax Romana, this new peace, world peace of Christ. No, Jesus has come to bring you the real good news, the real gospel, that his peace is like no peace that this world can give, right? So you can see why these, um, these masters are not telling a lie. They're actually, in one sense, telling the truth. Like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are preaching something that is not lawful for Romans to observe. So unlawfully though, unknowingly to the Romans, they stripped Paul and Silas, they beat them and they threw them into the stocks. Now, that would be illegal to take place to a to happen to a Roman citizen. Paul is a Roman citizen. Even though his father and mother are both Jewish, his father's 
obtained his citizenship. And so Paul being born of a son, uh, sorry, born the son of a Roman citizen was a Roman citizen by birth is something very difficult to attain. Uh, A Roman citizenship would be very difficult to obtain, but Paul is born by birth, a Roman citizen. And yet he's not using his Roman citizenship card uh, basically to get him out of a beating. You have to have a trial. You can't just be beaten as a Roman citizen and thrown into uh, a dungeon. No, but Paul allows it. Paul holds that card back. Why? Well, even though Paul is a Roman citizen, Paul is now a citizen of a greater country. So he is allegiant to a greater Lord and a greater Savior. Now he's in the stocks. They're beating Paul and Silas and they're singing. They're singing joyfully and praising God. And around midnight, as they're doing this, a great earthquake happens and the doors of all the cells fly open and all the chains fall off. And there's a jailer there and he is terrified because by law, if you let a prisoner escape, you're going to be executed as a jailer. So he's about to take his own life, but Paul cries out to the jailer, don't do it, don't do it. We're all here. And so the jailer cries out to Paul, what must I do to be saved. Now that's really interesting because as a Roman, this jailer would have already been saved by Caesar. He's part of this Pax Romana. He's been living in this gospel of Caesar that would say he is already saved because Caesar is on the throne and he is the savior of the world. And yet this this jailer understands there that Paul and Barnabas are part of a greater kingdom. They have a greater Caesar in a sense. They have a greater Lord. They have a greater Savior, and he wants to be saved as well. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Now, that would cost that Roman quite a bit, that Roman jailer, to publicly profess that. It's interesting. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And just like that would most likely, and you'll, as you will see as we go through Philippians 1, is that would most likely bring persecution upon that jailer for making that profession. It's bringing the same kind of trouble on the people of Philippi uh, about 10 years down the road. So we'll look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to kind of show you that what's going on in the church in Philippi while Paul is writing the letter. This is what he says, chapter 127 um, of Philippians. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed or frightened by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. So it's pretty interesting. He's begging them to stay faithful and united to the gospel, striving, fighting for the gospel without being frightened 
because they have opponents that are frightening them, that are persecuting them. But as they show no fear of death, no fear of loss of property, no fear of punishment, it's actually a sign, a wake-up call to them that they will be destroyed if they cling to allegiance to Caesar, but that they will be saved if they change their allegiance, they transfer their allegiance to Jesus. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that's exactly what happened in that jail cell with Paul and Silas and that jailer. He realized it's better. Let me put it like this. There's a freedom that's slavery and a slavery that's freedom. There's a freedom that's slavery and a slavery that's freedom. That Roman jailer was free in a sense, and he realized he was a slave. And Paul and Barnabas, oh, sorry, Paul and Silas, excuse me, were confounded in, or they were, com- sorry, I'm having trouble with my words. I'm confounded. No, they, they, were, uh, they were locked in that cell. They were bound. And yet they were free. And he wanted that. Now, when was this written? We've got the, the who and the where, now the when. Most believe this was written around 60 to 61 AD in Paul's first imprisonment in Rome under Nero, the emperor Nero. So you got this really crazy emperor now uh, and violent emperor. He has not completely turned on the Christian yet, Christians yet. That won't happen for another few years. And so... They believe, most scholars believe that Paul is let out of prison, but then after the fire that Nero starts in Rome and that great persecution of Christians begins a few few years after this letter of Philippians is written, Paul and Peter are both arrested again and, um, and put to death there in Rome. So why is Paul writing this letter? We've got the who, the where, the when, and now the why. Well, Paul, like I said, he's in prison in Rome. And though he's in chains, in quarantine, as it were, Paul is not ineffective. In chapter 1, verse 14 of Philippians, he says that the whole praetorian guard has now heard the gospel message from Paul. So Paul is there in Rome, and yet this guy is witnessing to the elite soldiers there. They're all hearing the gospel. In Philippians 4.22, he says that he's even making disciples in Caesar's own household, which is pretty incredible. So people in Caesar's own household are hearing the gospel message from Paul and changing their allegiance to the ultimate Caesar, to Jesus. Now, in this condition that he's in, this, um, this imprisonment in Rome, The Philippians hear about it. And even though they are very poor, they collected an offering for him and sent Epaphroditus to take it to him. Now, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And pay attention to this, now knowing the context of this, and think about, have you ever heard these, these words used out of context in church? All right. Now remember, these are the Philippians that in their great poverty are, sent, are made a collection. They got a collection together to send 
to Apostle Paul, who is in prison in Rome. Okay, now this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now brethren, writing to the Corinthians, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, a couple of things that he said about them. They're in a great ordeal of affliction. So these guys, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, are pressed. They're persecuted. They're struck down. They're They're confounded. They are just, what is going on? This is such a terrible time. They're going through what Paul says the, the Corinthians are going through as well. So in Philippi, they're going through this great struggle and they're very poor. It's one thing to be going through the coronavirus or something really difficult when you've got a lot in savings, right? Yeah. You know, like we're going through something difficult now with this coronavirus being quarantined, but we have quite a bit of resources. Yeah. We can order things from Walmart or Amazon, H-E-B and go pick them up. We're not struggling. We're not in want, but that's because like in the eyes of Philippians, we would be, we would be Lydia type people, right. right? Like we have a ton of resources. Well, they are not in that kind of a place. They are in a really, really difficult ordeal because not only are they being persecuted, but they are also in deep poverty. Yeah, we're not suffering too hard when we're sitting, playing on their computers and watching Netflix. That's right, that's yeah. right. And yet these people out of their great, deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It's one thing I don't know that you've experienced, but I have. I've seen it in churches where the most generous people are often some of the poorest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've experienced that together. Yeah. From some very generous people who, you know, in our eyes, we thought they had nothing and they served us a meal that was you know, very costly and lots of time and effort and preparation. And it was some of our like dearest memories. Yeah, absolutely. And so, very convicting. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so these Philippians take up this offering to give to Epaphroditus to take to Paul. He continues in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So have you ever heard that quoted in church? Say it again. Yeah. They gave not just according to their ability, but beyond their ability. First, they gave themselves to the Lord, but then they gave to us by the will of God. Have you ever heard that quoted by a, oh, a yeah. pastor or a preacher? Usually just, on a Sunday where they're focusing on, on giving the, the financial needs of the church building. Yeah, body. to try to get people to give more to the church. Now, understand what's actually going on. The Philippians are not giving to a pastor. Um their local pastor or something like that. No, no, they're not. They are, oh my goodness, BDK, that's <laughs> hilarious. 
I don't know if I can do that. I've already been slaughtering some words tonight, BDK. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But no, they're giving to an apostle who is in prison, possibly about to die. That's who they're giving to you. I, I hear you, Jen. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. But think about it in the context now. That's right. Those in need, not those in greed, right? Now, so the first reason why Paul's writing this letter is basically to, to thank them, right? To thank them for that, for that gift and to encourage them. Now, here's the second reason that Paul's writing the letter. So as you read the book of Philippians, you get into the second chapter, you come into this man, this, you, you come into this name, Epaphroditus. And he gave Paul a report of what's going on. He gives Paul this great report about the persecution the Philippians are facing. But he also gives Paul a report about some internal unrest that has developed primarily between two, two um, prominent women in the church, but it's kind of filtering out amongst the rest of the people as well. And you can understand that, right? When you're going through even something low level like this quarantine or whatever, this lockdown, the more time that we spend together, a lot of opportunity for fighting happens, right? Some yeah. bickering, you know, yeah. and you can see it. And so these, um, these people are struggling. These poor people are struggling. And it sometimes, it sometimes feels safer to take out your frustration on the family than to bring it to God or to take it out on the people that you're actually frustrated with. Right. And um, that's one thing that you see happening with, with this church because there's so much turmoil going on. There's so much stress. They begin to have conflict with each other. And so Paul encourages them in this time to fix their eyes on Jesus. And he encourages them to think back to not just Christ's example, but also how the church was founded and that it was founded in conflict. And so he encourages them to fight victoriously in the spiritual war, war that they're a part of. So, that's a, a really good point, Jenny. She said who people truly are truly are is amplified, like you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's also like like hitting the lottery, right? Like yeah. it amplifies someone's personality with soda's like great struggle. Yeah. Right? It brings out what's really there. Yeah. So let's let's dive into the actual um words of the text now. I apologize for for really laying that out in, in long form. But the context is so important because it really helps um, illuminate so many of the phrases and sentences and words that Paul uses. And we will keep doing that as the weeks go. I'll keep coming back to Acts 16. I'll keep coming back to that passage out of 2 Corinthians 8. We'll keep coming back to the story of Philippi and its foundation um, as we go through it. So, Chapter one, verse one of Philippians, it says, Paul and Timothy bond servants, bond servants. In, in other letters that Paul writes, he will often identify himself as an apostle. He'll appeal to his apostleship, but not here. Here, he simply calls himself 
a bondservant. Now, this, this word doulos um, or douloi in the plural, it can mean a bondservant. And to explain what a bondservant is, that would be someone who is a slave, but their master decides to set them free. Now, this person, because of the character of their master, because of maybe the benefits of being in that household, decides, no, I'm going to serve you with my life. And so the way they would mark that is they would take like an awl and they would pierce the ear. And maybe maybe Psalm 40 talks about that. My ears you have opened, my ears you have pierced. Maybe the psalmist is kind of talking that about that based out of God delivering him out of this deep mire. So he's looking at the great character of, of the Lord and he's saying, pierce my ear, man. I want to serve you with my life. You set me free, but I'm going to serve you. So that would be a bond servant, but it's also the word for slave. Now, one of the reasons why um, man, my hands are on in this delay with the uh, YouTube broadcast. <laughs> and that's really funny. I'm seeing it in one screen, moving in one direction and the other one. You're starting to sound like a pothead. Oh my gosh. Okay, I got to move on. We got to get back into the text. Okay, so it's it, this, this word doulos means slave. One of the reasons that uh, the Philippian church was so... Um, was so impoverished is because so many of them were actual slaves or bond servants. The gospel is um, often so much um, more readily accepted by those who are poor, by those who are struggling. And you see that in Luke's writing, he doesn't just say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting. And James talks about in chapter two of his epistle that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. So Paul calls himself a doulos, a slave, a slave to Christ. Why would Paul do that? Well, as you see in chapter three, there's nothing more that Paul wants in this world. All he wants is to know Christ to become conformed to his image. That is what is driving his life. He wants that more than anything. And the center of this book of Philippians is found in something called the Christ hymn. And that's found in chapter two of Philippians, where Paul says, have this mindset, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or exploited, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And it goes on, and we're going to really highlight that passage um, in the upcoming weeks. But the Lord of the universe empties himself and becomes a slave. And Paul says, I want nothing more than to be like that. Maybe he's thinking he's coming toward the end of his life. And maybe the, the phrase like apostle doesn't really mean anything to him right now. Right? Everything compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord is like dung. Yeah. Even the word apostle. He just wants to be a bondservant. Maybe like the psalmist in Psalm 84.10 might say, 
better are, you know, a th- better is one day in your course than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. You know, just let me be a doorkeeper. Let me be your servant. So Jen said when you were talking about that, it reminded uh, her of Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. It says, I, I know it is two different things, but I try to pray like that. Lord, let me not be rich or poor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a psalm that or a proverb that I I had skipped over until I saw like Francis Chan doing a video on that. Um, was it 30, 30 verse 7 through 9? Yeah, he says, two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is in my portion right? That I will not be full. Don't let me be so rich that I'd be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? But also don't let me be in in want so much that I would steal and profane the name of my God. Yeah, that's awesome. Jennifer brought up uh, John 3.30. So is that he must become greater and I must become less? Ah, I don't know. Just throwing that off the top of my, off the top of my head. I need to jump in there. That's awesome. I appreciate the these these it. comments. Huh? I said, if you want me to hold this. Oh, yeah, that would probably be better. John 3, 30. Yeah, he must increase and I must decrease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, that's great. You know, Paul um, hits on this, um, this idea of a bondservant also in Galatians 1.10, and this is Stephanie's life for She had it on her high school letterman jacket. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you want to read it? It's right there. Oh, well, that's a different version that I know. But for, yeah. I am, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Yeah, love that verse. I, I mean, I wish I could say that I totally live by that, but... That's something I struggle with constantly, but it's a life goal for sure. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, kicking it old school and actually using a Bible. That's, yep. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> um, but I do have a lot of my notes on the screen too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and Andrew, absolutely. The, uh, the Deuteronomy passage about bond servants, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right, buddy. Thanks for thanks for uh, commenting on that. Do you want me to read that? Or no? uh, I mean, yeah. it's the same thing that we've been. Oh, okay. But yeah, absolutely, it's good. So, um, also this we idea got one of more Froggy twenty five oh five. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening, thanks for Froggy. Listening. Appreciate you being part of the chat. And also, this idea of bond It also like brings you right back to Acts sixteen. Why did Paul not flash his Roman citizen card when he was about to get beaten? He's not serving himself. He's not looking out for his interests. He's looking out for the interests of others. And he didn't know who that would be necessarily at the time, but he sure found out a few hours later that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you know, is just prompting him, hold on, Paul, hold on, be meek. You know, let me lead you. I got a plan. I got a reason for this. Don't try to get out of this right now. I can't imagine how tough that would be. Yeah, and there's sometimes when Jesus yeah. prompts him to, to leave a city. Right. But this time he's saying, hold on. I, ca- I can't imagine that either. Yeah. I mean, it's just, 
That's incredible. But he saves that card. Just for a mic drop moment later. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, they're not just slaves. They're slaves of Christ Jesus, right? That's, that's more of Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. They are bondservants, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, that idea would have this word Christos is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the one who is anointed with olive oil, the one on whom the oil drips, the anointed one. And, you know, there's this great, this is a messianic title. This is a kingly title. He is the king. And you see that so clearly in Psalm chapter two. Psalm two says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord, not Caesar, and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And you can see this great conflict between the empire cult and the kingdom of God going on all through the New Testament. New Testament. You see this great conflict between the one who is over the nations, as 1 John 5 says, and the real creator, the real king of the nations. And though they are all plotting together, conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed, verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it's kind of cool that Paul, he ties that phrase with the resurrection in Acts chapter 13 in his message to uh, Poseidon Antioch. But continuing, Uh, Verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That phrase comes in Revelation two, um, John bringing in Psalm two into the book of Revelation. I believe it's in chapter 19 when Jesus returns on the white horse. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoicing with trembling. Do homage, worship the Son, so that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So when Paul is using this title, messianic title of Jesus, he's bringing them, their understandings back to this bring their minds to this understanding. They are not alone. God sees it. And God is going to pay back those who have troubled them. God is not absent. God is not um, sleeping. He is very much aware and he's going to do something. And so they need to stay and fight this battle God's way. So, They're slaves of Christ Jesus. And now he says to all the saints, this is, sorry, getting back into Philippians chapter one, verse one, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. 
Now, Paul uses this word a lot, this word saints, quite a bit, and it's always, except for once, in the plural. But even when it's used that one time in the singular, he's speaking of each and every saint, like you are all, all of you are a saint, you know, individually, kind of a way. This is not something uh, special uh, given to certain people who have done miracles, um, like the Catholic Church would say. No, this is a very important title. This is a title that means they are hagi, hagioi, I believe. Each one is a hagios. They are a holy one, one who is set apart for God's special purpose, and they are in Christ Jesus. So let's get into that. When you hear this word saint, what it should automatically bring you back to is Exodus chapter 19, when God has brought the people out of Egypt, and now they are all camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, when he is about to basically take them as a bride um, under a chuppah, uh, this great cloud, and God's going to read the terms of the marriage in, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's, he's saying, Here, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to set you apart for myself. All right, so this is Exodus chapter 19. This will help you understand this idea of being a, a saint, a holy one for God. Exodus 19, verse one, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's key, brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So just like in Exodus, we are holy ones. We are set apart. First, we are set apart to Christ. Like God says, you're going to be my own possession. You're going to be my possession. We are set apart to Christ. Like this marriage relationship. But secondly, we are set apart for Christ, for Christ's purpose. Like he said, they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They would be, you know, priests, uh, they represent the, the needs of the people to God and they represent God to the people. And so this kingdom of priests would be representing God to the world, to bring the world in to bring the good news to the world and thus expand the kingdom of God throughout all of the earth. It's basically coming back to the original uh, commandment that God gave Adam and Eve to be fruit, fruitful and multiply. And the same thing he says to, um, to Noah after the flood, to be fruitful and, and multiply, you know, bring the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. And you see in Isaiah, he says, it's too small a thing for you to just be um, a savior to the house of Israel, but also to a light to the Gentiles. And you see the same thing in the great commission, go into all the world, right? All the world, making disciples of all nations, um, 
teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you, right? Surely I will be with you, right? So we're set apart in terms of what does it mean to be a saint? It means that you have been set apart to Christ like a bride to a groom for that most intimate type of relationship. And then you're also set apart for Christ to show the world the knowledge of God, to show the world what it looks like, what Jesus looks like, right? You have now become an ambassador of reconciliation to the world. You are representing the kingdom of God to a world that is so messed up, that has been given a false gospel from a false Caesar. And you see this, these, both of these ideas, not only um, laid out in, in Exodus chapter 19, but uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter also quotes um, that passage in Exodus chapter 19. This is what Peter says to people who are also, when he's writing, most likely, you know, kind of around the same time, maybe that Paul is writing Philippians. Uh, so he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Sound familiar from Exodus? A royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim his excellencies to the world. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, you're foreigners, you're sojourners in this world. You may be a Roman citizen, but this is not your home anymore. You have a new citizenship in heaven, right? I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of his visitation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's what we were talking about, about being set apart to Christ and for Christ. That's, that's really challenging in a lot of ways. I mean, it's really good. Like it's, we have a purpose. We're not just, okay, we're done. We've, we've made our decision. We're going to follow Jesus and that's the end. But then we have to actually follow. And he has, he has a purpose for us. He has so much ahead of us if we'll just take that next step and then the one after and the one after, and we continue in that. And I think that's, I mean, when you compare it to the alternative, serving the, the flesh, like it's just, it's creating chaos where Christ is creating order mm. and it may not look like that. You know, Paul's life certainly didn't look like it was always full of order, but he's able to say at the end of it, he's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. You know, he feels, he knows that what he's done, he's, he's used everything he had mm. and he's able, he's confident with that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was really cool. You were talking about just take that next step and then the next step and then the next step that was reminding me of uh, Psalm 119 where it says your word is like a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my mm -hmm. path. And it's not like a big floodlight that's just like having a lighter out in the middle of the woods at midnight where there's no, you know, uh, light pollution from the city. I mean, you're in the woods, it's dark, yeah. but if you got a lighter with you, you have enough to take your next step. Mm 
And that's all we're responsible with. Just yeah. take that next step that God has put out in front of your feet. Mm-hmm. All right, let's continue. So it says, um, Paul says, it's to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, what this begins to hit on is originally there's like a two, two-ordered approach toward church government in terms of like a local church. You have overseers and you have deacons. Okay, and that continues pretty much for that first century. In the second century, you begin to see a little bit different stuff. They begin to distinguish overseer from elder. But originally, this idea of elders uh, and overseers are combined. Uh, Even in the New Testament, you can see that that the um, the, uh, Ephesian overseers are also called elders, I believe. In Acts chapter 20. Uh, so interesting, there's like this blending. And what's really at, hitting at is this, uh, the aspect, to, two aspects of the same role, at least in the first century. So this idea of overseers comes from the word episkopos, which means on fitting contact. All right, it means to look intently, like at an end marker concluding a race. Like my son uh, is in track now and or at least he was before Corona. Nobody's and track uh, right now. yeah, so we got to uh, we got to see him run a race, and it was really neat. You know, as you're coming around the turn, you the turn last turn, um, you see that finish line. And so an elder, or sorry, an overseer's job, an episkopos, where you get like the word episcopalian from, is also where we get the word bishop from. Uh, their job is to like help you keep focused on the finish line, which is not finishing a building campaign. No, it's about becoming more and more like Christ. That is your finish line. As Paul really hits on in Philippians chapter three, being uh, united in his death even and in his resurrection, right? So becoming like Christ, that's the finish line. And so an overseer, a bishop who is doing his job correctly is going to be shepherding you in a sense that poimeo, um, where we kind of get the idea of um, what a what a pastor should be doing, uh, kind of shepherding someone toward the end goal, which is Christ. All right, helping them remain faithful until the end. So that's an overseer's job. But you also have deacons, and I mean, I could do a real deep dive on this stuff. I encourage you to just, for a starters, read First uh, uh, Timothy chapter three. Uh, and that'll give you a description of what um, qualifications for both overseers and deacons. But a deacon, diakonos, uh, it means it comes from this idea of like thoroughly, uh, which is dia, and conus, which means dust. So it's really interesting when you put the two words that make diakonos one word, it means to thoroughly raise up dust by moving in a hurry. And so to minister. So these are people, these are waiters. If you've ever eaten outside at a restaurant, it's like not paved ground, like we will in like Mozambique, you know, and these people that are trying to bring us tea or bring us some cookies or whatever, they're like kicking up dust. They're trying to bring us this stuff to be a good host. And so deacons are supposed to be like going throughout the body to, to help Make sure everyone's needs are getting met. And you can see that really well in Acts chapter 6, 
verse 1. All right, so now we're into verse 2. I thought it would only be like an hour, but we may go like an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes or so, if that's okay with y'all. If that's okay with you, Steph. It's fine with me. What were you told once that you have the gift of? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What was the gift of gab? Yeah, it was the gift of gab. Uh, (laughs) So I was allowed to uh, lead a few a few songs in worship back in like 2004 at a church that was mostly like traditional choir stuff. And uh, I set up the two songs with a long delivery, like I just did now, like explaining why we're doing it or whatever the context of the song before we sang it. And I, I, I went too long. <laughs> That's all right. We're studying <laughs> God's word. So just keep on. Yeah, yeah, I showed the gift of gab explaining that joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it's ridiculous. Okay, so uh, verse two, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're actually, I mean, we're getting, we're getting in the home stretch now. So grace to you, this word charis, it comes from the Hebrew term kana, which means grace or extension toward, like reaching out toward. Both refer to God freely extending himself. God freely and volitionally, willfully extending himself out to us. Extending out his favor. Reaching out, inclining to people because he is disposed to bless them and to be near them to show kindness to people. You can think about in Romans chapter eight, while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. And yeah, he said, God demonstrated his love to us in this. And it's also a great picture of his grace that we in our most helpless estate reach out to them. You can see it in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is asked, what does it look like? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the, um, the good Samaritan, right? And how this man, this man, this Samaritan sees this Jewish man in great need and he doesn't pass on by like the priest and the Levite. No, he bends down freely, volitionally. He reaches down, he bandages the man's wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn to have his so the guy can re- recover and he pays for any kind of expenses that um, the man might incur. And Jesus says, so who was the neighbor? And it's interesting that the, uh, the scribe that asked him that said, the one who showed mercy. And it's, it's interesting there um, that mercy is not the absence of a positive action or the absence of an action. Like sometimes you'll hear grace is us, um, getting what we don't deserve and mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. But in that, in that story, Jesus shows mercy as being a very positive action, helping the helpless, basically helping those in need. And that's, that's God. Absolutely. We are all beggars, right? We are all that Jewish man bloody on the side of the road while we are still helpless at just the right time. At just the right time, Jesus died for us. But it's not just that. It's not just that uh, Jesus died for us and rose for us and lived for us. All that stuff is true. 
That's all true, but grace is not just that. It's um, this word charis has a big lexical range. And what that basically means is this word can be used to convey several different ideas. Like if I said, Stephanie, um, my head is hard. Would you agree with that statement? I concur. Yeah, right? And now what am I saying if I say my head is hard? That you're stubborn. Absolutely. And am I stubborn? Absolutely. Way more than you would like, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I could say my head is hard. But I could also say this table is hard. Now that's different. I'm not talking about this character quality like um, stubbornness. But now I'm talking about a physical surface. Something that can't be moved or manipulated. Yeah. Now, um, you know, when I was studying Greek, I did not do that great. And frequently I would be thinking as I'm taking one of my Greek tests, this test is so hard. Now that doesn't mean uh, a a flat surface or something, um, the density of, of a particular object or anything like that. And it's not talking about the character of something. I'm talking about the difficulty of something. So there you have like three different ways that the word hard is used, and it can be used in other ways as well. Similarly, and so you have a a bigger lexical range for a word like, like hard. Well, similarly, you have one for grace. So just in the New Testament alone, it's defined as blessing, a concession, credit, favor, gift, grace, graciousness, gracious work, gratitude, thanks, thankfulness, and thank. You know, so there are all these different ways that this, and kindness as well. All these different ways that this word uh, is used. Sorry, it just got called out. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jennifer says, oh, well, you must be really hard-headed because I've heard you use that example before. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, no, I'm just not very creative. Yeah. <laughs> You're very creative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. Um, so grace is, if we really want to just bare bones it, it's favor from God. Favor from God. And man, don't we need that? Aren't we so thankful for that, that favor from him? Grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. That word peace is erene, erene, which means to join together, to tie together into a whole. Wholeness, when all essential parts are joined together, peace happens, right? God's gift of wholeness. You could think about it in one sense, the lady with the 12-year hemorrhage, I believe that's in Mark 5, mm-hmm. when she uh, touches the corner of his, the fringe of his garment, and thinking back to that prophecy in Malachi, I believe it's chapter 4 or 3 or 4, when it says, like, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings or his kanaf. And so when she is touching that portion of Jesus's garment, the fringe of his cloak, his garment, she's believing that he is the Messiah. If he is the Messiah then he should be able to heal me even if none of the doctors can. And so he turns around, he realizes that power has gone out from him. He says, who touched me? No one wants to say it. And then the woman comes forward and he says, daughter, 
Go in peace. Your faith has made you whole, right? This wholeness, her body's coming into wholeness. So that's a form of peace that we also get. But Jesus would also say, peace I leave to you, a peace that this world can't give you, you know? In this world, you're going to have trouble, but in me, you're going to have peace. And so peace is not the absence of trouble. That's not what he means because he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but in me, you will have peace. In this world, you're going to have times where you get locked down, right? You're going to have coronavirus. You're going to have heartbreak. You're going to have friends turn their back on you, family turn their back on you when you need them. This stuff is going to happen. There's going to be all kinds of chaos throughout this world. If you don't believe that, if no pastor or teacher has ever told you that, that as Christian, there's going to be chaos, there's going to be trouble, hear it. I really want to just encourage you to read the parable of the soils. You can read that in like Luke 8, Matthew 13, uh, yeah, Mark 4. Each one of those is a little bit different variation of it, but that um, that second and second soil that seeds are thrown on is troubles and difficulties and persecutions that happen. And so someone receives the word of God. They receive it with joy, with gladness. They're like, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be his disciple. But then trouble comes. Persecution comes. Difficulties comes on, come on account of the word, right? And then it says that seed that sprung up quickly, it withered when the sun came because it was founded in rocky soil. And I think that's something that like should be in every new member's class. That parable right there, it's so important. Trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. In this world, you will have trouble, but in Jesus, you will have peace. Can you repeat what you said? Peace is not the absence of trouble. Yeah. Peace is not the absence of trouble or the absence of chaos. It's the presence of the wholeness that we find in Christ. It's the presence of Christ. And really, so I'm getting towards some application here, bringing it home. How can we really experience that peace? Well, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 say, we need to work out what Jesus has been working into us. We need to work that out. And Paul gives a really, a really, easy in one sense example of how to do that in terms it's not hard to understand but it may be kind of difficult to practice in the moment and he does that in Philippians chapter 4 if you got a Bible turn there and turn to um, chapter 4 verse 4 and he's actually just like kind of called out these two women that were having this chaos um, that were having this friction and he's calling them to be humble and have peace. And so this is kind of, in that context, this is what he says. This is how to experience the peace of God. And again, it's easy to understand. It's hard to practice somehow. All right. So this is Philippians chapter four, verse four. And this word right here, the first word rejoice. It's basically the theme of the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to break down that word rejoice in just a minute, but I want to read Philippians 4.4 all the way to 4.9. All right. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. 
The Lord is near. I just want to pause there. I want to encourage you to think back to Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas in the stocks after being beaten with rods. What are they doing? They're singing praise to God with prayer. They're praying and singing joyfully to God. Why? That that gentleness, right? They don't run out when the prison doors fly open. They don't keep quiet when they know that jailer is about to kill himself. They don't say, shh, 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 shh. let him do it. Yeah. They could have. This guy was yeah. responsible for putting them in the stocks, right? Mm-hmm. No, that gentleness to let that man know that God is near, right? I think, it, I mean, there's there's so much of listening to the Holy Spirit in that because there are situations that we see in the Bible that are God delivers in that way. But it's, you know, it's we have to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and we have to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit because it's not a, a one size fits all. Like every time, you know, anytime that we're locked up in prison and the doors open, you're supposed to sit there and do this. It's going to look different in each situation. And, you know, God has given us the Holy Spirit to help help us to discern his truth. Yeah, Froggy, I'm reading these comments and, um, you know, you're getting encouraged to rejoice, um, to get closer to Jesus. And you're saying, how? Hang tight. Paul's going to give you that. Paul's going to give you that. Uh, explanation. All right. So this is Philippians chapter four. We did verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. He is near. Okay. But hang tight. It says, be anxious about nothing. How in everything by prayer and supplication, prayer is maybe more just talking with God, listening to God, thanking God. Supplication is specifically lifting up a specific need generally, usually for someone else, um, sometimes for you or for your situation, but it's usually for someone else. You know their need. You're feeling that compassion, okay? So be in prayer, be in supplication. How with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, with this charis, right? Being mindful of his grace. And we're going to get to that in a second. With thanksgiving, that's so important when we're praying. You don't have to say, God, I thank you for necessarily like going through this list. It doesn't have to be this robotic, rote, rehearsed type of format. You're just being mindful of the ways the Lord is near. The Lord is with you, right? From all the things we've been talking about, and you can picture Paul. He's in, he's in stocks, bloody, covered in blood, bruised up more than any of us have been bruised before. And he's singing with thanksgiving. Why? Because he knows the Lord is near and the Lord is up to something. He knows God is able to, he's able to bring good out of every situation for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? And so he says, if we're doing that and letting our requests be made known, it says, and the peace of God, this is verse seven of chapter four, the peace of God, the arena of God, the wholeness of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you're not going to know everything that's going on. You're not going to be able to understand everything. You're not going to be able to reason it out. 
rationalize everything out and see it from all the angles. There are going to be so many things in our lives that just don't make sense, but there's going to be this sense of wholeness from God. I am in Christ. Nothing can take me out of Christ. I am in Christ. He's with me. He's with me. He is near with me. All right? And verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent or worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And I'm really going to break that down when we get to that chapter several, several weeks from now. But dwell on those things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so don't just be a hearer of the word. Don't just hear what we're saying and be like, that's right, that's good. No, do it. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so here's something you can practice right now, Froggy or whoever's listening. That word rejoice is Cairo, Cairo. Okay, so the car comes from that word charis, which means like favorably disposed toward, leaning toward, all right? It has that idea of charis in it. But the other part of the word is, is to delight in God's grace, to rejoice, literally to experience God's favor, to be conscious or glad for his grace. So to be mindful of what, how God is acting favorably toward you, how he has been, how God is at work, really taking time to dwell on those things, to be conscious of it. That's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. How do you rejoice in the Lord? Well, maybe you could sing if those words that in the songs are helping you think about, about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. And so really, in so many of our and the songs that are on Christian radio right now is all about me, 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 I am this, I am. We need to not focus so much on us. We need to focus on him, on who he is, on what he is doing, what he has done, what he's going to do. And the more we're thinking about that stuff, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace as the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus says. Can't 
firing squad But I'll sing your great love forevermore I'll tell of your great faithfulness, O oh Lord And I am sure, just look around and you can see and taunting, they divide my clothes Their only hope to have a change of heart I can't escape the firing squad I ain't running from the firing squad